0: Hey, what up, hello everybody, Alex Kapitko here, Centered for Reality Podcast. First and foremost, sorry, I lost my voice over the weekend. It is significantly better today, but still a little bit hoarse at times, so yeah, we'll just have to deal with it. But anyways, first and foremost, Ben Shapiro, (laughs) he has a song with Tom McDonald, probably one of the most annoying, cringy misinformed rappers in the game he's kind of what i would call an anti-woke culture war rapper just to share some of the things he would usually rap about he raps about there only being two genders he claims that he's he's okay to be called a racist because he's not ashamed that he's white another one of his lines is if every caucasian's a bigot i guess every muslim's a terrorist Yeah, the guy is pretty deplorable. I mean, talking about just the stupidest points of what the right thinks of the culture war and people on the other side. You know, another line, go woke, go broke, no hope. I mean, it's just like this guy is just like bottom of the barrel trying to just turn the culture war into rap and it's annoying. But anyways, Ben Shapiro, one of the co-founders of the Daily Wire, has a song with him. (laughs) God, it's, it's actually pretty insane to me that 10 years ago, Ben Shapiro was like debating guns and tax policies and the war in Israel. Well, he's still doing that, but you catch my drift is like he was debating policy and fighting on campuses with like what he would call college liberals. And now he has one of the biggest conservative media platforms in the country. And he's resorted to Featuring in a Tom McDonald song. Here are some of the lyrics, by the way. Look at the stats. I've got the facts. My money like Lizzo. My pockets are fat. Look at my graphs. Look at my charts. You're blowing money on strippers and cars. (sighs) You know, this to me is like the pinnacle of... Why the right is going to keep losing people over time. Because... There's no longer actually talking about Social Security, inequality, climate change, immigration. Like right now there's an immigration bill being held up because Trump has now made it clear he wants there to be a crisis on the border because he can use it against Biden, right? Like this is a party that actually doesn't care about policy. So now Ben Shapiro, who's actually like a fairly smart guy, he is now featuring in rap songs just doing diss tracks. This is a guy who is Ivy League educated, who has a media platform, and he's one of the co-founders of a big conservative network. And he's spending his time rapping about Woke Karens and the WAP song with Tom McDonald, who... I mean, not Tom McDonald, Tom McDonald. So I start with that because once you hear the song, you will never unhear it. And it's pretty damn bad. Ben Shapiro, (laughs) it was my buddy... Let me pull up what my buddy said, because I think he he had a really good point on this. He said, this song sounds like epic rap battles of history, but it's serious. And then he talked about how Ben Shapiro has some kind of orthodox Eminem energy. So anyways, fun stuff. But we'll move on. Uh, a lot of more serious stuff to talk about today. I want to talk about what happened with the U.S. troops getting killed in Jordan. And I think this is also time for us to kind of refocus our strategy on dealing with Iran because it's clear to me Iran's proxies are out of control. Iran is not able to control them like it it used to want to. But at the same time, it's all a symptom of us kind of not properly deterring Iran and we also not maybe understanding the post-Iranian revolution era. So that's going to be important to talk about. And then at the end of this I want to talk about how we should have learned from history when corporate newspapers, capitalists and private enterprise all induced – all or not endorsed but they all defended Mussolini and Hitler for a little bit. And we saw and I, and basically what I want to do is talk about how fascism requires the support of capitalists. And right now we're seeing some of America's capitalists Justify Donald Trump as not being bad for their business, even if he might be bad for the country. And that's a worrying trend to see people that, after January 6th, condemn Trump now kind of saying, well, he'll be good for our bottom line. He'll be good for our profits. He'll be good for the stock market, etc. That is how you get to authoritarianism when you decouple capitalism from democracy. So, anyways, we won't start with that. Let's get into what's going on in the Middle East. So. I think Politico can kind of help us understand some of the basics. I'm going to use that as kind of at least the background for the summary of what's happened. But basically, there's a military outpost in the desert in northeastern Jordan, and it was little known before international attention is now on it after that drone attack, which killed three American troops. And reports show dozens more. I'm seeing 34 others at least. And, sorry, um, Politico writes here in quotes, The base, known as Tower 22, sits near the demilitarized zone on the border between Jordan and Syria, along a sandy, bulldozed berm, marking the DMZ's southern edge. The Iraqi border is only 10 kilometers, or 6 miles away. The article continues later, The area is known as Rukban, which is a vast, arid region that once saw a refugee camp spring up on the Syrian side over the rise of the Islamic State's group, so-called caliphate in 2014 and from my understanding this is actually pretty interesting this area actually had over a hundred thousand people living there i'm assuming mainly refugees and basically jordan was not allowing them to cross into the actual kingdom of jordan because there were concerns about infiltration by isis and other groups and there were concerns such as a car bomb in 2016 that killed jordanian uh, border guards etc and This is interesting because at the time, this is back when I was in my undergraduate studies, and I remember hearing a lot of reports about how Jordan was doing a really good job bringing in refugees, helping other countries like Germany try to quell the refugee crisis that they were seeing. It's interesting now looking back and going like there was actually kind of a crisis going on in this this DMZ-like region as well. And so that is another conversation for another time. But basically, what has happened since is that U.S. troops have long used this region and have worked alongside the Jordanian government because Jordan borders Iraq, Israel, the Palestinian territories of the West Bank, Saudi Arabia, and Syria. So it's basically a really good jumping off point for U.S. intelligence in the region. And according to Politico, some 3,000 American troops typically are stationed across Jordan. Now it's getting interesting though because basically... U.S. presence in Jordan in general could actually maybe destabilize the regime of King Abdullah II. He has been a key American ally, but at the same time, Jordan is seeing huge mass demonstrations against what's happening with Israel's war on Hamas, definitely humanitarian crisis, arguably war crimes, and potentially genocide as well. Obviously, we're just waiting for all all the numbers to come out. But either way, a lot of innocent people are dying. And the Jordanian people are definitely siding with Palestine over Israel here. So now King Abdullah II, his relationship with the United States is coming under question here. So this is interesting because this attack on this small outpost, Tower 22, was actually, according to CNN... The first time American troops have actually been killed by en- enemy fire in the Middle East since the beginning of the war in Gaza, and October 7th. And I guess the interesting thing here, and this kind of surprises me, is because over the last couple months we've been hearing about tax on American troops in Iraq, in Syria, Lebanon, and now of course in Jordan. And now I guess you could say finally chaos, or the S-word, is is finally hitting the fan. And this has been something U.S. intelligence, the U.S. military, our Western allies, we've been worrying about for a long time. So as of now, we have three Americans killed by a drone attack. And Biden has now told reporters today that he has made a decision about the U.S. About the US response to the drone strike. And he was asked by CNN's Arlette Sands whether he has decided to respond. And he said, in quotes, yes. But CNN also notes that he declined to provide further details. Of course, he's not going to provide further details. They want to keep Iran on their toes. This, to me, gets into a really tough situation for President Biden because the narrative right now seems to be that he's damned if he goes too far and damned if he doesn't respond with enough force. His own party aside, which is obviously split between the centrists that are more pro-Israel and progressives that are more pro-Palestine, that aside, the right is kind of attacking him from both sides, which is making the rhetoric and just actually his campaign going forward even more tough re- regarding how he responds to this. Because you have kind of the Trumpian isolationist J.D. Vance Rand Paul right, which is attacking him for being a war hawk. They're, they're saying he's been doing too much in Ukraine, giving Ukraine too much money. We shouldn't even be involved in Israel, blah, blah, blah. And they're saying, you know, we should be focusing on the southern border. And then you have kind of the traditional, more like neocon right, like the Tom Cottons and the Lindsey Grahams and the Nikki Haley's who are saying he's not doing enough and we should just bomb Iran and that he's being a coward and he needs to go after them and he looks weak and he's not projecting strength and Trump would do better. The logical pretzel of all of it is pretty insane to me, to be completely honest. But either way, it's a tough moment for Biden. But I would argue this is a time that we kind of need to recalibrate our strategy, not only towards what's going on, in you know, Syria and Iraq, but more specifically with Iran and its proxies. And I've talked about this before. It seems like Iran has given too many of its proxies too much leeway, and now it's starting to backfire. But I think it does get even more complicated than that. So anyways, the, de- the debate that I'm seeing right now, it's not as much in mainstream media, but it's more kind of between the Biden side and Republicans, is that We're talking about what is the degree to which Iran is involved in this. I think Joe Biden has done a good job, more or less. Graeme Wood, who writes for The Atlantic, I think he sums up Biden's position very well. He writes here in quotes, President Joe Biden quickly blamed, in quotes, radical Iran-backed militant groups. In response, several Republican senators and others have called for strikes on Iranian territory. But the Biden administration has been careful to assert only that the reasonable groups are trained and funded by Tehran without implying a direct Iranian role. And I think you guys know my stance on this is basically that Iran has given too much leeway to some of these groups. And a lot of groups, for example, like the Houthis, even though they are funded and backed by Iran, they've always kind of operated on their own and they're radicalized enough that they're willing to go and die to fight what they see as the Western invader, the Israel-supporting invader, and they're not always going to listen to Iran. So it gets very, very difficult. And to me, I think two things can be true at once here. It's that we haven't dealt properly with, with Iran, whether that's through deterrence or diplomacy. Both have failed. And I think at the same time... Iran has let some of the rowdiest parts of this axis of resistance that it's formed get out of, get out of hand. And a lot of these are firmly rooted in um, Iran's you know, Shiite Islamist ideology. And it gets really tough because now Iraqi groups have crossed the red line of killing American soldiers. And this does cause concern for more escalation. And even if the Khamenei in Iran tries to restrain them, I think that's kind of out of the question. And as Graham Wood again writes in The Atlantic here in quotes, Tehran can exercise only so much control over its proxies in day-to-day operations. He writes later here in quotes, By tying Iran's fate to an unruly axis, Khamenei has endangered his country and put it at a serious risk of war. That is all true. But I think it gets more complicated when we look at, like, how does the U.S. respond to this? Because clearly Iran kind of just wants us to get bogged down in a myriad of wars, dozens of unwinnable wars. And then, you know, we overextend our resources, munitions, everything's expensive. I mean, in a sense, that's kind of what's happened to us over the last few decades. And I guess it's, it's kind of asymmetric warfare. I mean... Iranian proxies, they're cheap, ready to die. You know, politics in America, democracy makes war difficult because public opinion can actually impact it, which I think is a good thing. But then at the same time, weaponry is expensive, as I said, and the United States does not want to lose as many lives while you have groups like the Houthis that are just willing to throw themselves into the conflicts. And the whole idea of martyrdom is significantly different. And At the same time, obviously, there's growing hatred for Israel, growing hatred for what's going on in Palestine, rightfully and wrongfully so. And it's just a mess. And so I think Graham Wood brings up probably an interesting point. And I was talking to a buddy of mine who knows a lot about military operations and is kind of involved in that profession. And he was telling me we need to do what Trump did to Soleimani, more targeted strikes that actually show that we're not messing around. And I'm starting to think that that probably is how you do it because right now deterrence is not working and Iran thinks they can kind of keep sitting back and letting their proxies strike our allies, strike us, and we're so bogged down with these unwinnable wars that it's impossible for us to actually do much about it. And after we killed Qasem Soleimani... After the Trump administration, and and you guys know I'm not a Trump guy, I'm definitely not a Trump guy, but after the Trump administration in late 2019, no, it was early 2020, killed Qasem Soleimani, Iran said they were going to retaliate and bring death to Americans, but they also refused to retaliate in ways that actually caused chaos in the region, it tried to attack American troops abroad, but it did so poorly, there wasn't a lot of success involved, And it just seems like we need to do something targeted again, because as Graham Wood writes, by definition, a policy of deterrence works only when one's enemy declines to test it. But now Iran is probing, probing, probing. If American policy was to deter, it has recently failed, visibly, and it needs to be restored or replaced. And obviously I don't want to blow up the region. I don't want to go for insane... Tit for tat battles here, but I I do think we need to respond more targeted, and that's kind of what we did with Soleimani, and it did kind of quiet down Iran for a little bit. And also, it was kind of legal for us to do that to Soleimani, for example, because he was with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, but he was in Iraq in the course of his duties, working with the Iranian proxies in the or sorry, yeah, with Iraqi proxies in the region. They were trying to kill Americans, and we 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 got them, and I think we need to find out exactly who is involved in the death of our troops, and we need to strike that base. We don't strike Iran. I'm not one of the people like Lindsey Graham because I think that's insane and it would lead to way more deaths. But inside of Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, we need to target these proxies, and also in the Strait of Hormuz, we need to attack. We need to stop all of these proxies from going more radical. Because at the end of the day, that sends a warning to Iran that we're not effing around. And that would actually remind them that deterrence is on our side here. Now, I think there's also the other side of this, that American policy might be the biggest indicator of instability within not just the Middle East, but with the totality of what we're dealing with Iran right now. And you have to remember that, The Iranian Revolution, by the way, I'm forgetting right now off the top of my head what it's called, but HBO, or I guess it's Max now, has a really good, I think it's like a five or six part series on the Iran hostage crisis, and it actually interviews people from both sides of it. It it interviews some of the Marxist students that were involved in the revolution that were the hostage takers, and it also interviews people that were the hostages and working at the embassy there. And it's a really interesting documentary that I think gets into the heart of everything going on, all the changing social dynamics inside of Iran at the time. And so anyways, all of the Iran problem or the Iran chaos the United States has with Iran, it all dates back to the revolution led by the Ayatollah Khomeini and his followers in the late 70s. And basically you, you had basically American support for modernization which was the shah at the time in iran and yeah he was modernizing the country and making it more capitalist and westward leaning but at the same time he was a brutal monarch and this led to a lot of anti-american sentiment and conceptions and hesitations about what the united states wanted to actually do and since then there's been just decades of chaos and just more and more antipathy And hatred and just kind of breakdown between the two sides. And I guess to me, it kind of seems like the United States has always found um, a less than great direct way of attacking the Iranian regime. It's either the hostage situation back then, or the proxies or the nuclear development, or what they're doing in Iraq. But Generally speaking, there is a larger issue between the United States and Iran itself. And I guess basically I would argue that Iran has developed a really successful proxy network in the region that is quite more radical than the actual Iranian regime. And then you also have the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps kind of helping support these groups. And so basically what happens is one of these Iranian proxies does something, attacks a Western ally, attacks the United States, and we're busy responding to it. And we've never actually responded directly to Iran or tried to show Iran, no, like you can't do this. Instead, we're just responding to localized events that we sometimes claim can be linked with Iran. Other times it's a little bit murky. And I also don't think that the U.S. is really winning the cultural battle here. Maybe, maybe even cultural battle is not particularly the right word. We're not winning the soft power war. And when, when I talk about soft power, I don't mean military might. I don't mean strength through force. I mean just the image. Iran, you know, working with Russia, India, and other groups like that, they've really fed a lot of the world kind of this mixture of resentment towards American excess, anti-Western religious fundamentalism, And kind of anti-imperial aspirations, kind of mixed with Iran and Persian imperial aspirations. And the United States has just never properly responded to that. And I would argue it's because, sorry, voice is getting a little hoarse for a second there. But I would argue it's mainly because, for example, we have Obama come in, and I think rightfully so, want to improve diplomacy with Iran, say that, hey, we'll lift sanctions if you guys make sure you're not going to keep developing nuclear weapons we're going to help bring the middle class out of kind of a kind of a purgatory that's been there for quite some time and we are going to open dialogue and then you know obviously trump comes along and you have the more hawkish people in trump's administration like the like the john boltons who are basically just like no iran is a terrorist group and we cannot even work with them we need to respond to them with power and strength and the pendulum is not exactly productive when you're dealing with such a complicated issue here and to me, it actually seems pretty naive to respond to Iranian proxies, respond to regional attacks, but then not actually have a long term strategy that can actually with, withstand differing administrations in the United States because it's not getting to the crux of it is that the United States and Iran have a huge cultural, religious, and kind of like socioeconomic breakdown that began in 1979 when the iranian revolution happened and it's not just going to change overnight there's just no way and the problem here is that iran is not an advanced country by any means but it's been manufacturing long-range drones and missile missiles sorry russia's been using them in ukraine it has good open source information human intelligence its nuclear program hasn't stopped and it does look like Iranian proxies are more powerful than ever. So, I think if I was going to prescribe something, we need to respond to its proxies with lethal, with lethal, sorry, I can't speak tonight, with lethal attacks against Iran's Quds Force, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, its commanding forces that are not operating inside of Iran but working with its proxies in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon just to name a few, because these are the groups that are being supported and propped up by the IRGC and the Quds Force that are leading to threatening our troops. And I would say just escalating and continuing the conflicts that we're seeing with them right now. And until we, I guess guess we can't keep talking about the proxies without trying to find a better way to deal with Iran. That would be my ending, closing argument in this segment. And that's not what Lindsey Graham or Tom Cotton or Nikki Haley says is where we need a full out attack on Iran. No, I'm not going to pretend to have it now, but it needs to be something that pressures Iran to maybe dump its proxies and to say, no, what is happening now is stressing us to the point where we're just going to ignore you, not give you more aid and let you deal with this yourself. I genuinely think that's the best way forward here. All right, so I I do want to move on. There will be a plethora more of information and just things we could talk about going forward here. But I want to talk about domestic policy, policy for a minute, but also it kind of leads into everything else, generally speaking. But for a long time, I've talked about how one of the levels of fascism that I've studied through history is super important. And what I mean is one of the support levels of fascism That allows it to flourish under the right circumstances is becoming more prevalent. And yes, I know, fascism is partly a hyper nationalist movement with expansionist, almost imperialistic views. That's why Mussolini wanted to mirror the Roman Empire and Adolf Hitler wanted to mirror previous Reichs and Prussian expansionism. Yes, fascism wants to enforce tradition over progress. Yes, it opposes excess and culture and art. I talked about in the last episode why they were purging some of the pieces of modern art that they were purging. Fascism usually involves a regimented masculine society focusing on what they deem the perfect ideal of the state. However, I think there's another lever of fascism. And it not only requires... Capitulation by the capitalist and corporatist class, but also somewhat of their endorsement. And as you guys know, I support capitalism. I'm a big fan of the Nordic model of capitalism. Look it up. I don't have time to get into that in this episode because it's going to be a longer one already. But some have called fascism a reaction to late stage capitalism or even a reaction to a crisis of capitalism that kind of melds with imperialism and longing for tradition. And I'm not sure if we need to think too much into those definitions or those theories. Instead, I think the simple answer is that the authoritarian governments that run a fascist society can highly be beneficial for corporate interests, as long as the corporate interests endorse the government. (laughs) Fascism is almost like the inverse of communism, right? It's an authoritarian system that does rally against opposition, excess, all of that stuff. But fascism actually helps bolster corporatism and radical capitalism, unfettered capitalism, I guess you could say, for industrial gain and profits. And I think one of the myths that fascism exposes and turns upside down is the idea that a capitalist system needs a vibrant democracy and open society to succeed. I mean, it's a whole other co- uh, conversation to be had, but China is also showing that not through fascism, but through how a mercantilist, authoritarian government can also be quite successful running capital markets. But, anyways, back to fascism. In a sense, a corporatist fascist state is actually really good for capitalism. And early on, it was interesting to see how many industrial elites, newspapers even, in the United States and the United Kingdom actually liked the policies of Mussolini or Adolf Hitler. (laughs) There's a 1933 piece from the Financial Times out of the United Kingdom that has, by the way, not aged well at all it is definitely not aged well and basically the financial times argued that there were some positives to benito mussolini il dulce and the piece was called the renaissance of italy fascism's gift of order and progress and the correspondent wrote in 1933 in quotes here trains were running on time investment whether sorry investment was humming and friction between capital and labor was a thing of the past. It later writes the country had been remodeled rather than remade under the vigorous vigorous architecture of its illustrious prime minister, signor Mussolini. And I think like the most disturbing part of this is that like it's kind of true at first. <laughs> and it's kind of through throughout these like authoritarian right right-wing like regimes that popped up during this same period of time. Whether it was Adolf Hitler or Benito Mussolini or also like Franco in Spain, to name another one, there was a growing alliance of international corporate classes and what their vision was for the new state. And, and that I guess that's always kind of troubled me. But anyway, well, actually, no, like, like another thing is that Texaco, giant oil organization- it was one of the ones that was actually helping bolster Francisco Franco's revolu- or civil war in Spain where they were massacring and destroying any form of democracy left in Spain. I won't get into the details of that because I've talked about it a lot, having spent a lot of time there and just hearing the horrid stories of past generations. But anyways, back to this Financial Times piece from 33 that kind of defends Mussolini. Yeah, investment does hum. It's interesting. And I think this piece perfectly explains why early on, capitalists supporting elites and big papers like the New York Times and the Financial Times, etc. in the West, thought that Mussolini's fascist system was good. It brought in record profits, and it fought against labor unions and labor movement movements that were deemed communist at the time. And I think that's always an important thing to note here is that there was always the red scare in the background of all of this. And so a lot of corporate interests were afraid of what happens if the left gets in. What if the communists, the socialists get into power? Well, then we defend the fascists. Now, of course, over time, since that 33 piece, one of the reasons why it didn't age well is because we saw the atrocities that European fascism brought in the early 20th century it torpedoed out of control and eventually swallowed itself into a black hole of inevitable chaos. And along the way, millions died. We saw a Holocaust and we saw the breakdown of a pretty flawed world order, which led to a new world order that I guess we still somewhat are in. Anyways, I bring this up because this is not going to be one of my rants about fascism again, which I've done plenty of. I bring this up because it seems like corporate America is starting to come around to accepting or justifying another Trump administration, which just in its face bums me out. But again, I don't think Trump fully fits the mold of a fascist yet. Hopefully, hopefully never, but at least yet at this time. But I do think he's become a very vengeful man that is delusional that also has autocratic tendencies, whom models many of the policy views of fringe parties in Europe that came out of the ashes of fascism. And I think we're in a pretty serious moment here where our current political system offers a re- should, a, should offer a reminder as to why we can't go along with corporate interests supporting the guy that might be good for them but not the country. Just like how a lot of the Republican Party condemned Trump after January 6th, corporate America was really quick to condemn him as well. Jamie Dimon, who's been in the news a lot lately, we'll talk about him more in detail in a bit, but Jamie Dimon, currently the executive chief executive of J.P. Morgan, he talked about how the peaceful transfer of power is important. This is after January 6th. And he said in quotes, this is not who we are as a people or a country. and of course that sounds good. a lot of a lot of leaders that are kind of apolitical came out after January 6 and said this. a lot of corporate interests said this because i would argue at the time it was the right thing to say. but a lot has changed and leaders like not leaders i keep saying leaders Chief executives and capitalists like Jamie Dimon have come out and they are changing their tune one by one. And he changed his tune probably most dramatically when he was at Davos in Switzerland for the World Economic Forum's CONFOB in Davos last week. The Guardian writes here in quotes, on Wednesday, speaking from the World Economic Forum's CONFOB, chair and CEO of JP Morgan Chase the largest and most profitable bank in the United States, and one of the most influential CEOs in the world, heaped praise on Donald Trump's policies while president. Here's a few things Diamond said. Take a step back. Be honest. Trump was kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Diamond says later, he grew the economy quite well. Tax reform worked. He was right about some of China. He wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues. And I think it's just kind of interesting to see some of these people that have been pretty quiet for a while. January 6th happens. They say, this is not what we are as a country. We can't support this guy. But now they're looking at the polling. They're looking at the state of the country. And they're they're kind of accepting the reality that this guy could be president again. And now they're saying, well, actually, hmm, let's run the numbers for a second. Hmm. This guy could be bad for the country. But is he actually bad for us as a corporate entity? And I think the answer is no, he's not bad for us as a corporate entity. So we should start probably justifying to the American people why we will be behind him if he's president once again. And guys, this is not particularly different from when you saw large corporate interests in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Western Europe not stand up to Franco when the Spanish Civil War was becoming an atrocious human rights violation. Hitler and Mussolini are testing out their militaries inside of Spain against innocent people wiping out a constitution that was young and trying to flourish and then once Benito Mussolini rose to power well before but also not n- not standing up against Benito Mussolini once he was in Italy as well it's because you kind of look at your books and go hmm maybe this isn't so bad for our bottom line and and can I just try to debunk some of the things Jamie Diamond said not from his perspective but from the perspective of... An American citizen and whether Trump's policies are good. Jamie said he was kind of right about NATO. Trump is anti-NATO and if he gets back into office, kind of wants to pull out of NATO and that could open up parts of Eastern Europe to Putin's aggression. I've talked about parts of Moldova, the Transnistrian region. I've talked about Plan 2030 for Belarus. Trump seems okay with land grabs, and kind of getting back to a spheres of influence type of policy, which is actually not really good for the American economy. It would kind of destabilize and create uncertainty. He talks about him being kind of right on immigration. The Cato Institution, which is not exactly liberal, kind of libertarian, right? They found that, yeah, Trump was anti-immigration, but all he did was reduce legal immigration. I mean, Biden... And it's a stat. It's a fact. Biden has deported more people than Trump did. I'm not saying that's good or bad, but Trump was not actually good with combating like our broken asylum process or what's going on at the border. But he did reduce legal immigration, make it so a lot less people are welcome here. People like student visas less than you had the Muslim ban, as I call it, which it was. I mean, Trump wasn't good. And and, and for immigration, I mean, this country relies on immigration. I'm very very left-left libertarian on that. Like, I'm pro-legal immigration, and Trump actually curbed that. Not exactly great in my book, especially, by the way, if you're a Jamie Dimon type of Koch Brothers capitalist, you want more legal immigration. You want more immigration, period. So, I don't know what uh, Jamie Dimon's talking about there at all, but also tax reform. This is one of the ones where I probably understand where Jamie Dimon's coming from because... Most of Trump's, in quotes, tax cuts benefited corporations and the rich, but also just expanded, or I guess you could say exploded, the budget deficit. But I guess if you're a corporation, that's fine. The, the Guardian writes here, in quotes, giant banks and financial service companies got huge gains based on the new low corporate rate at 21%, as well as the most preferable tax treatment of pass-through companies. Guys, I would argue that is probably why Jamie Dimon likes this. The last one here, though, the right about China thing is interesting. China has become more of a problem ever since Trump was president. And it's not like a problem where we're we're more afraid of each other, so we're talking and coming to the table. It's more like a sense of chaos with China, where confrontation is worse and not like not like good confrontation just like confrontation where there's almost now a growing inevitability of a conflict we're not cooperating or talking secretary of defense lloyd austin and and his counterpart in china haven't even been able to talk when there were issues over over the south china sea and just our capacity to talk is breaking down the Brookings Institution had a good piece that found that Trump's China policy made China less restrained in pursuit of its ambitions. And, and, and that's not all good. So when you put all of this at the table, I understand the tax cuts and why someone like Jamie Dimon would like that and other corporate interests. But I think the bigger thing here is that I think people like Jamie Dimon are kind of thinking they need to kiss the ring. What I mean here is that Trump in his first term, and I'm still not sure Trump becomes president again, but this is just me going into the hypothetical realm that he is president again. Trump will do a lot of favors for large corporations and for the business elites as long as they don't criticize him. He's always done enough to keep corporate interests on his side, even through his crazy America first populist rhetoric. And I think people like Jamie Diamond are making that calculation. And of course I am not comparing Trump to the fascists of the 1930s, but it's a similar calculation that a lot of Rockefeller types, Ford types, Henry Ford types, etc., made during that period to not really want to speak out against some of these rising threats and people that were illiberal monsters because they saw, well, if we don't criticize them, and if we look internally Some of the more authoritarian right-wing tendencies that sometimes can come out to be fascism, they're not actually totally bad for corporate interests. But then it gets to the point of like, is that good? Do we really want that? And I, I guess to wrap this up, Edward Luce has a really good opinion piece in the Financial Times, and it's kind of a reaction to that 1933 piece I was talking about where the same paper defended some of Mussolini's record. And at the end of the piece, I just want to read what Luce says. He was on the bulwark, and that's where I first saw this. But I'm going to read this because I think it's important. He says, We learn from history that we do not learn from history, as Hegel said. His uh, his point applied to our species, not just to business. But it is worth stressing that capitalism goes hand in hand with the glove of rule of law. It thrives on the transparency of rules and the sanctity of the contract monopolists on the other hand hate the level playing field the one that requires a competent state to uphold america's 2024 election will be a battle between liberal democracy and the strongman. it could also be seen as a contest between capitalism and capitalists which is better the system or the aspiring monopolist no prizes for guessing where trump's instincts lie And that's why I think it's problematic because Trump would not be for the system for the American people, for the capitalist system we have. He would be for the people that thrive off of capitalism and are fine with breaking it, even if that means degrading why our system exists and what it stands for. So, anyways, on all these light notes, we're going to wrap up. It's pretty bad when a Ben Shapiro shitty rap is the lightest note to begin with. So, as I exhale, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify. Podbean. You guys know the rest. Thank you as always for listening. Have a great night. Adios.